1: 40 to State, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, we'll be taking a fine-toothed comb over what we know so far of the biggest restructure in the ABC's history. We'll put bets on the collapse of digital news media and we'll be asking, do you trust a robot to give you the news? Joining me in the studio is Crikey's Media Report, Emily Watkins, hi Emily, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. And Communications Advisor with CSIRO's Data61, Ketan Joshi. Hi Keitan. Hi. And joining us on the line from Melbourne is Carl Quinn, Senior Entertainment Writer with Fairfax Media. Hi Carl. Hi
2: Guy.
1: Now, the dust has settled on the biggest restructure in the ABC's history and ABC staff are now in a consultation period after Guthrie announced the changes last week. From February next year, the old divisions of television, radio and online will be gone. They'll be replaced by three new content teams and a content ideas lab, which sounds a little bit Silicon Valley inspired, if you ask me. These three new content teams are a news analysis and investigations team that will cover state news investigations and in-depth reporting, an entertainment and specialist team that will cover arts, science, religion and indigenous content, as well as children's content, music and comedy, And a regional and local group that will include rural and regional teams, sport, weather and live events. And firm details on the Content Ideas Lab are yet to surface. Michelle Guthrie said it would focus on content innovation, whatever that means, and that it will implement a new international strategy and it will explore fresh content ideas that connect with new audiences. Once again, a little bit vague. It's important to note that there were no staff cuts announced as part of the shakeup. In fact, Guthrie clearly said it was not about cost-cutting, program changes or a reduction in networks. Ketan, are there any other big media organisations out there elsewhere in the world, public or private, that you see doing a good job of creating and disseminating content for digital distribution in the 21st century?
3: Yeah, there are a few. I'm a bit of a podcast junkie, uh, so it's astonishing how much free content you can get on podcasts. And um, quite a few of my favourite ones are coming from National Public Radio in America. You just, get, you just get an amazing quantity and you get amazing quality at the same time. And, of course, online uh, there's quite a few that do the same thing. Uh, they tend to be private, so I'm thinking of uh, outlets like BuzzFeed, uh, for instance. I think they're probably a good example of something that I go back to myself because i really enjoy the content so in terms of innovation though in terms of like creating new things and having new ideas the kind of content that i really enjoy is stuff coming out of the guardian because they tend to be experimenting with virtual reality uh they're experimenting with a whole range of new podcasts as well and that's just something that i'm inherently attracted to because it's interesting it's new and i don't know if if that kind of stuff necessarily has mass appeal but i really enjoy it it's really fun to consume
1: Yeah, you certainly get the impression that, I mean, especially in Australia, The Guardian launched as an online-only presence and they're much less wed to traditional methods of delivery. But anyone who works at the ABC will tell you that the organisation is firmly split into separate silos who don't interact. Radio, TV, getting them to work together is really hard. How long do you think, Carl, that it will take to achieve the digital-first platform agnostic utopia that Guthrie envisions?
2: Well, I don't. I I couldn't put an exact timeline on it, uh, and I speak from the experience of working at Fairfax in a in a company that has very much tried to achieve something similar to that. Um, and it's an ongoing process. I'd have to say. I don't think you suddenly switch uh, a lever and then you're you're there. I think that you have to keep. Um, you have to keep on the process. You have to keep on managing the way people work and the way they report and their through lines. So a whole bunch of boring administrative management kind of stuff to make sure that it that it actually comes to fruition. I mean, I, I'd have to say that I think the broad sweep of what she's doing uh, makes a lot of sense to me, that you organize around topics and you reduce duplication, which means that you're not, you don't have three – three different people or three different teams producing the same science story for different media that you're producing at once and you're disseminating it across platforms and you're, you know, obviously changing it as you go. It makes a lot of sense to me. It means you can cover a lot more ground with the same budget and they're, they're not going to get more money from, certainly not from this government and probably not from any government in any, any uh, foreseeable future. So if they want to be in all the spaces that they, they say they want to be, then they, they do have to do things differently. And uh, I've got to say that I think it, it, on paper at least it makes sense to me.
1: So what's with all this vagueness around the content ideas lab, Emily? Do you think that they're really planning to take big risks here and be truly experimental or is that kind of courage and bold movement perhaps a little bit beyond a big and slow moving organisation like the ABC?
0: Well, I'd like to think that they they could do really bold um bold and innovative projects. I think that is something that would be really good for the public broadcaster to do because, um, you know, it's a challenging time for a lot of the media and and they've got a lot more funding than a lot of organisations in Australia to do that sort of thing. So I think think that would be great in a perfect world. And I think um, I'd like to think that's what Michelle Guthrie would want and what the management of the ABC does want. I mean, she's been, she's spoken a lot, very loudly about how she wants the ABC to transform into a, um, to an agile organisation that, to use a management word there, um, that can, that will be um, fit for purpose, I suppose, for generations to come and will serve her children and their children. Um, and to do that, you do need to have big new Ideas You can't be wedded to radio and TV and traditional storytelling. So I would like to think that some really great projects will come out of that. And I mean, the ABC in recent years has done some really innovative things. I mean, it was the first really with um, in Australia with a streaming platform with iView that has been incredibly successful. Um, so I don't think it's beyond the ABC to do something new and exciting that could be a template for, for other organizations Um, I mean in practice that's a bit harder than (laughs) than saying the words but yeah I'd like to think that it could
1: Keetan, what's with this new international strategy? I've seen recent news of a podcast collaboration between uh, the ABC Kids podcast, Short and Curly, and the US podcasting behemoth, WNYC, which is part of NPR, who you mentioned earlier. Have you seen anything else emerge from this new international strategy that Guthrie mentioned?
3: The only thing that that pops into my mind is a partnership between, uh, I think it was... Uh, one of the ABC's international arms and a company called Suisse. Uh, and that was that was a little odd to me. Uh, it wasn't really what I associated the ABC with in my mind. Uh, was, what
1: does that company do?
3: Uh, they make uh, vitamins. Oh. And it was really, and of course, you know, uh, my, I, I sort of spend a lot of time in the scientific community and you know, a lot of my Twitter friends are science people and so there's been a, a bit of criticism of Suisse on my feed. So it was a little odd. Uh, hopefully this new venture is slightly more collaborative and slightly more focused on investigative journalism. I suspect it will be. And uh, that sort of thing is really good because it it brings in a new audience and it probably encourages innovation too because they're talking to people who are doing really different things overseas. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful about that one.
1: The restructure and the team that made it happen illustrates a shift in leadership at the ABC that's been happening over the last little while. For a long time, upper management of the ABC was mostly made up of ambitious producers and journalists who rose to the top – Now it's led by Guthrie, who is a corporate lawyer, and the restructure was led by a corporate consultant, Deborah Francis, who has been brought in-house and given the official title of Head of Transformation. And of the 11-person executive, fewer than half of them come from a content background. Carl, do you think that that's a good or a bad thing for the ABC and for Australian audiences?
2: I I think that uh, sometimes management consultants can see a way through uh, cultural roadblocks in an organisation and, you know, Guthrie is charged with, uh, you know, reshaping and leading the ABC for, well, at least five years and we'll see beyond that, but uh, if she has come into the organisation and sees that there are structural impediments to cultural change, then I think that... Taking outside advice about how to get past those is not a terrible thing. I think there is a there's a danger of the kind of um, bland bland kind of uh, one size fits all McKinsey school of uh, you know what every organisation ends up looking the same. That that seems to me to be uh, a danger in using consultants or over reliance on consultants. But, um, you know, Jim Rudder came in, I think he was in and out in three months. He's not there anymore, is my understanding. He, he did his job and moved on. So it kind of feels like it was maybe an okay and necessary, uh, you know, sort of sweep of the broom. Um, you know, look, ultimately, I think that the... The proof will be in the pudding. If if we end up with a, a more agile, more forward-thinking, more innovative ABC that is still committed to independent journalism and doing the hard reporting that most other news organisations in the country are not resourced to do, then I think you, you'd you be able to say that it's it's been, it's been good. It's been a good fit. But I don't think we'll be able to judge that for another probably 12 to 18 months, really.
1: And of course, achieving that kind of journalism requires a happy and functioning staff. Now, Emily, you wrote after conversations with ABC staff after the announcement. How is the general vibe at the ABC at the moment? And how big is the fear that job cuts are on the way?
0: Well, I think one of the things at the ABC is that there's always a fear that job cuts are coming. I don't think that that's um, specific to this announcement. Um, and that's been the case really over the last few years. There's been so many cuts due to budget cuts. There's been um, And those effects from those cuts, I think it was 2014, are still some of those jobs were still going this year. So that's an ongoing concern um, for, for a lot of ABC employees. Um, and I think one of the things about this announcement in particular is, as you mentioned, it is it is quite vague. So um, there's there's the broad brushstrokes of, you know, the, the silos are changing, uh, we won't have radio, TV, online divisions anymore, but m- no one knows what that looks like. And I think in a in an environment where a lot of, um, not just journalists, but staff generally are really concerned about what the future is for the ABC, what the direction is, what the purpose of the changes are. I, I think a lot of staff aren't necessarily opposed to change. Some are. There are some people at the ABC, I would say, who are quite set in their ways. But I think there's also a lot of people that are really open to change and open to the ABC um, moving forward with the future and adapting to the media media landscape, but they don't. They also would like to know what the purpose of the changes are. So, if we are changing this, what is that actually going to do for us? What does it mean for our jobs? What do, how will it make um, how how will it help us serve our viewers, listeners, our audience better? And I think that's one of the things from the announcement was that they were I think a lot of people were hoping for a bit more detail on what it might actually mean in practice and why beyond the broad we're adapting to a change changing landscape um yeah so I, I think people are still feeling a bit uncertain about the future and what the purpose of the changes are and when you don't know the purpose it's, I guess it's a bit hard to know whether they'll work because you don't know what they're trying to achieve
1: all right, and just finally on the ABC, Carl, you wrote about how ABC board chairman Justin Milne uh, revealed plans recently for the ABC's transformation into a Netflix style streaming service from as early as next year. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, that was um, at the Screen Forever conference. He delivered the, uh, the sort of keynote speech, Hector Crawford Memorial Speech, and i'm not sure how much people kind of registered what he was saying um but but it seemed to be that he he was pointing to the idea of a thoroughly data-driven uh programming strategy uh, where uh, they would use the same sort of um you know data that that uh say netflix or amazon or 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 even stan uh accrue on on the habits and consumption patterns of of their customers and they would use that to determine what kind of content they commissioned. They would use that to determine what kind of actors they cast or personalities they cast. Um, I, he, I think he was pointing to the idea that uh, the, the ABC would become much more focused as a streaming player than as a traditional linear broadcaster, that it will it, it's moving increasingly to freeing itself from the schedule. There was also talk in Michelle Guthrie's session at um, the same conference, Screen Forever, that the ABC's iView would become an international platform, that it would become um, something that you could access from other countries in a way that at the moment you, you're you largely prevented from doing. Um, and that signals, I think, an intention to move increasingly into that kind of streaming space as its main, its main territory, its main domain. Just, Justin Milne said, we're not getting out of TV and radio uh, as a sort of, you know, don't want to startle the horses kind of line. He didn't say dot, dot, dot just yet, but I, but I certainly detected that in, in his speech. So I, I kind of think that we're, we're moving towards a situation where, you know, maybe decades away, but I think that the ABC is certainly uh, preparing itself for a, a, a future in which it is not uh, primarily or perhaps maybe not even at all uh, a broadcaster in the way that we currently understand it.
1: You're listening to For The State. A chill swept through the digital news media industry last week as BuzzFeed and Vice both revealed that they're going to miss their revenue projections for the year. And Mashable was sold for $50 million, a pretty substantial cut from its 2016 valuation of $250 million. What this showed is that not even the hotshots of the digital news media industry are immune to the shifts in online publishing, shifts that are largely attributable to the ongoing slash-and-burn approach to online advertising by Google and Facebook. The Columbia Journalism Review's Matthew Ingram summed it up in a rather ominous tweet, Winter is here for digital media. Keitan, something about this story seems familiar. Could it be, oh, I don't know, the collapse of print media that had exactly the same issue because they had funded their organisations with advertising? Are advertising-funded models just a bad idea, plain and simple?
3: I I think there's some key differences here. Uh, Namely, print media had something of a, a sort of monopoly Uh, there weren't a huge number of competitors. With the digital space, there's an insane number of competitors. There's Really low entry points, and you can just start up your thing. And of course, there's still a limited number of advertisers, so that means the cost of advertising goes down. And so I think we're seeing something slightly different here. Uh, And that's where Facebook and Google come in, because they're delivering ads in quite a different way. They're delivering it based on an algorithm, and they're also using a bunch of different tools. To make people come back to their platforms now there's obviously a big difference between facebook and google facebook is creating an environment that is just filled with your friends and information that you agree with and like and make you makes you happy Uh, google is incredibly useful and that's why people are going back to google because they get a lot of utility out of it Um, the net result is the same when they place ads on both of those services a lot of eyeballs hit those ads and uh with news outlets digital news outlets something's going on where uh, there just aren't enough people seeing ads. Uh, And it's probably worth picking that apart a little bit, what's going on with digital.
1: But there's plenty of advertising dollars being spent, and that market is growing, but it's an increasing proportion of it that Google and Facebook are gobbling up, right? I just wonder, I'm surprised, I suppose, that these digital news organizations like BuzzFeed and Vice I mean they came out of a startup culture that was about moving fast and I just I'm just surprised that they didn't see it coming and that that there hasn't been more of an emphasis on perhaps subscription based models Emily, Crikey works on a subscription-based model. What's your take on it? Do you think that a model that really bases itself on funding from advertising is just a bad idea and subscription models are the way to go?
0: I don't think an advertising model in and of itself is a bad idea. I think part of the problem with BuzzFeed and Vice was that, I don't know, perhaps they were overvalued. There was too much excitement about um, scaling those businesses up and being able to charge premium Advertising and in practice, that just didn't really work because I, I think um, you know Google and Facebook's dominance w- could wasn't really predicted even for for these the startup news outlets. So I mean, it's only really in the last couple of years that that they've really started to monopolise that um, that funding. Um, I I think subscription models work for some some publications. I don't think you could, for example, put news.com on a subscription model. I think there are a few successful ones that are general, um, like the New York Times, for example, uh, the Wall Street Journal's doing quite well. I think the Financial Times just released its um, its subscriber numbers and they've I think they're at about 700,000 now, which is a lot for them. Um, so I think if you're either niche or so big that you can you can do scale for a subscription model.
1: Yeah, it's interesting though, because I mean, all those publications that you mentioned, they're sort of bigger, more established uh, publications, probably with an older readership than Vice and BuzzFeed. Yet... VICE and Buzzfeed, organizations like that, they're they're really focused towards millennials, who also happen to be people who are more accustomed and more okay with paying for stuff from their phone with regular subscriptions. They pay for Netflix. Just feels like maybe those organizations really did miss an opportunity to ask them to pay.
0: That's true, but at the same time, because as Katan said, the, the entry barrier is so low for digital, there are so many that are just going for cheap clicks to get those, you know, fraction of a cent per click for the ads on those pages or whatever so um, even if the quality of what BuzzFeed or vice news might be doing might be better if you can get something similar or at least your a bit of politics or a bit of what's happening from pedestrian or junkie or something that's free I, I guess you know whereas Netflix you can't unless you're you know doing your illegal streaming um. You can't get that product for free elsewhere.
1: All right, Carl, let's bring you in on this. One place that it's still apparently possible to sell ads and sell them quite well is on videos. And many news organisations talk about the pivot to video, which has become a bit of a buzzword at the moment. What do you make of this? And do you think that the heyday of video will continue?
2: My gut feeling is no. I think that um, certainly our experience at Fairfax is that people people uh, are happy to have video as an option, but I think the whole autoplay uh, kind of you know mechanism is something that infuriates readers, um, and that's really where you make your money from video is because of the, you know the pre-roll ads count as a count count as a click when they autoplay. Um, People don't like it. It's not. It's not the experience that they want. I mean,
1: it just makes certainly... me close the tab. Actually,
2: well, and I think that's a very common response. <laughs> I mean, it it actually it comes as an intrusion. I think video is an important part of the offering, but I don't. I don't see mainstream organize or news organizations. I should say, um, or organizations where their their primary um, their primary role is to is to cover the news. I don't see them all moving. Uh, primarily or entirely into video. I think that video will be an important adjunct, an important part of the suite of, of products that is offered. But I, I don't see it supplanting everything. I, I just don't think it's how people want to consume everything. For a start, it takes it takes longer actually to consume um, uh, your news in a, in a video bite in some in some respects, and it does in a in a say a three or four hundred word news story. Or you, know, you, you just consume,
1: consume a that. really dumbed down version of the story, you might say.
2: Yeah well i mean you can you can certainly consume a very dumbed down version of, of a of a written story by reading the headline and the pre-seed and that's it and for some people that's exactly what they do they will they will skim the they'll skim the headlines and pre-seeds on on a home page or on a on a you know a, a newsletter or whatever it might be whatever sort of channel they're getting they're consuming it through that might be as far as they go you know um, yeah i i think the i think the video thing is as so many innovations are in in the the news media space. I think it's a, uh, it's sort of like a flavour of the month blind alley that I think people have been overly enthusiastic for because everybody's looking for the one thing that will fix it. And I don't think there is one thing. I think that the, the organisations that survive will... piecing together strategies that bring in components from traditional models innovative models uh, a whole range of models that allow them to put together a a suite of offerings and a suite of uh, price points for consumers depending on what their consumption habits are it's it's got to be a much more nimble model than we've currently had and I think uh, that means that lots of things will be on the table not one thing will be the answer
1: and What about venture capital, though, because that is another complicating factor here. So a lot of digital news publishers are founded using some, if not all, venture capital. Among all the doom and gloom this week, Axios, which is a US-based and apparently quite popular over their news website that does news in short stories that around 400 words or less, they reported that they'd raised $20 million to fund further expansion of their newsroom. So is this good news, Kitan, or do you think that the involvement of venture capital really just further complicates the situation?
3: It could potentially be a bit of a problem in the future. And uh, if these models don't live up to expectations, as some of them haven't in the past, uh, then it's probably going to discourage future investment. And if that happens, there's probably far fewer ways that they can dig themselves out of the hole. And so... I try and think about sustainability like long-term sustainability. I have an energy background. and uh, technology that's overhyped can sometimes be its own worst enemy um, in that people get excited about it early on and they don't sort of slot into a decent business model that, l- that lasts you know several decades. and that discourages further investment. People get super cynical about a concept or an idea. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's slightly worrisome. But on the other hand, it's, it's kind of nice to see newsroom, a newsroom expanding uh, and journalists getting jobs. So um, hopefully, I'm pretty hopeful. You know, I hope that it goes well. But uh, it, yeah, it should also translate into a business model uh, over the long term.
1: All right. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Emily Watkins, Carl Quinn, and Ketan Joshi. Trust project running out of the Makula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University aims to create a standard way to classify a news organization's ethics and other standards like the journalist background and how they do their work Then this classification would be used by news organizations big and small all around the world so that algorithms of the tech giants can find and incorporate it so the markers that they might use would be things like who funds the publication what is the background of the journalist is it news or opinion or something else and they've got some big players on board, The Washington Post, The Economist, The Globe and Mail, Facebook, Twitter, Google and Bing. Uh, Now, the project lead, a woman named Sally Lerman, described it as something along the lines of a nutrition label on a package of food, which set off immediate alarm bells in my mind because we've had nutrition labels on food for as long as I can remember and we're in the midst of an obesity crisis. Carl, do you think it'll work?
2: At first blush, it's kind of an appealing idea um, because I do think that what news organisations ultimately will will live or die on is is trust and uh, their their reputation, and uh, it, it's it's important to to shore up those organisations and that sense of uh, reliability against a generalised disdain for you know you know. Terms like fake news and all media is is uh, full of lies and all that kind of diatribe that is that is so uh, so troubling to those of us who work in the media I think and so disappointing, but at some level you know understandable as well. So I think anything that sort of starts to re- recalibrate uh, the relationship between media organisations and and the the consuming public. To some degree, is is good. My concern with it, I think, is the the notion that you're either you're either in the club or you're out. And there is good journalism that gets done by individuals within not such great organisations. There is uh, sloppy journalism gets done within a reputable organisation. There are you know varying, varying uh you know within the, the the run of of an ordinary day. There will be good and less good reporting done. Um, I I, I, I fear the the potential um, damage that might be done to an organisation that is doing some good work but has not yet got the tick of approval. I I can see that as being potentially um, more deleterious than than beneficial uh, as a whole.
1: What are your reflections about the Trust Project?
0: Yeah, I guess um, in a lot of ways I agree with Carl on that. I think it's an interesting idea. I think a quick visual cue as to whether you can trust something you're reading online, it could be a good thing. But then at the same time, one of the Walkley finalists for uh, Scoop of the Year is a blogger who has not been a journalist but he um, and and just runs a blog in his spare time from his full-time job and he, um, broke the story about Barnaby Joyce's citizenship. Um, so, you know, I can't imagine that someone like that would have got a tick simply because he wouldn't have had the resources to do it. So, um, yeah, you'd worry that maybe stories like that might get, um, ignored or disregarded.
1: Keitan?
3: Yeah, this is a really fascinating one. I I really like the junk food analogy, um, in, in a couple of ways. So, the feed that we get on our social media platforms, whether it's curated by ourselves or curated by an algorithm, is generally tuned to avoid offending our sensibilities and protecting our identity. So, when we see information, when we see articles, it'll, it's probably something that we already agree with. Um, now, that's a really powerful thing, right? Like, it's uh, it feels fantastic. My own social media feeds are very much... Uh, Within that within that category, I, I'm not intentionally liking stuff and finding stuff that I disagree with simply because it annoys me and it makes me feel terrible. So, and I think probably um, the vast majority of people are in that category. Now, it would be really interesting to see how I would react if I saw something which I really strongly disagreed with, but that had a tick of approval and was uh, loaded with categories like uh, the journalists that did this are really trained and well-experienced and they used evidence and they've justified all of their conclusions within with uh evidence so uh, would i still would i react positively to that would it kind of change the formula would it change the equation but most importantly would it change my feelings so uh if it does change my feelings then of course the people serving me ads on that platform are going to be seeing me kind of differently because they, instead of a happy customer they've got somebody who's kind of cranky and seeing information that i don't like So, uh, if you kind of plug that whole system into the business model that these platforms are serving us information with, it's kind of interesting to think of the outcomes. It's a bit of a dark thing to say, but um, I'm not too optimistic about this working particularly well, simply because junk food uh, is so powerful because it goes to something way deeper than choices that we make on a day-to-day level.
1: All right, that is all we have time from this week on 4th Estate. Thank you so much to my guest, Emily Watkins. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Keita Joshi, thank you so much for coming in. Cheers. Carl Quinn, thank you for joining us.
2: Absolute pleasure.
1: And don't forget, you can subscribe to the 4th Estate podcast. And if you like the show, why don't you leave us a review on whichever podcasting app you use or even on Facebook. It really does help people to find the show. My name's Olivia Rosenman, and you can catch us at the same time next week.